Our first scripture reading this morning is from the third chapter of Lamentations. It's found on page 720 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible, if you want to read along. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. From Paul's second letter to his understudy, Timothy, the first chapter, verses 1 through 14. Paul writes, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers, day and night. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, But join with me in suffering for the gospel and the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, 
And this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard the deposit I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you, and with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. To our ears, O Lord, bring your word. For you alone have the words of eternal life. To whom else should we go? That we may hear, and in hearing, believe. And in believing, do your will to Christ's glory. Amen. Hearing today's scripture readings, my heart wanders back to the memories of my childhood home some half century ago. As a kid, our house was always filled with music. Now, not music usually from the old uh, hi-fi with its stack of records. No, it usually came from people in our house who were making music. It came largely in two forms. The first was the faltering work of piano practicing. There were five Krogh kids, of which I was the youngest, and my mom and dad had agreed before the first of us was born that all of their children would take piano lessons. Four of their children learned to play the piano, even though all five took piano lessons. From the ages of five until eight, we were permitted to practice one half hour a day. But from eight on, we were to practice one hour a day. And when my two eldest siblings, who became quite accomplished in their piano pedagogy, uh, were preparing for a recital, they would practice sometimes two and three hours a day. So if you do the math, five kids, an hour a day, six days a week. We didn't have to practice on Sunday. It made you look forward to that day. It would be between 36 and 48 hours of piano practicing in our household. There was one point at which we actually had three pianos so that we could at least overlap a couple or three of us uh, doing our piano practicing and still get to our homework. Each of us was also required to learn a musical instrument. My two sisters each learned to play the cello, uh, my eldest brother and I played the trumpet, and our middle brother played the trombone. To my knowledge, there is no music written for that ensemble. Two cellos, two trumpets, and a trombone. But the piano music uh, ranged, and the lessons ranged, everything from Swans on the Lake, from John Thompson's Teaching Little Fingers to Play, to uh, Gershwin's Prelude in E minor which was mastered by my oldest sister and brother. 
I said there were two soundtracks. One was the practicing of musical instruments, primarily piano. The other soundtrack was singing. All of us would sing, occasionally together. We would harmonize. My mother had a dream. Her desire was that our entire family would get to the point of prowess in, prowess in singing gospel music, that we would tour the world as the singing Krogs. My father was extremely grateful for the fact that we never got that good. Uh, but the music that was sung in our household was almost always gospel music, and not the gospel of mid-20th century, the, the Gaithers and such. No, this was the gospel music of 19th century revivals from the ends of the 1800s into the early 1900s. That was the soundtrack of my childhood, and I say that because much of the gospel music from that period was triggered directly from Scripture. It's possible that some of you caught that first one when Jane read the passage from Lamentations. Listen to the words and see if a hymn comes to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We're going to sing that together. It's hymn number 39. We'll sing that at the conclusion of our service. If you think Scripture doesn't speak directly to life as it is lived today, consider Jeremiah. He's a prophet. He's languishing in homelessness in a refugee camp after the fall of Jerusalem. He is a refugee of war. And yet he wrote, The thought of my affliction and homelessness is wormwood and gall, and my soul continually thinks of it, and it is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And then comes that, that music. Now, Jeremiah didn't set it to music. It was set to music many years later by the Methodist minister Thomas Chisholm at the end of the 19th century. But you know the song... Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. You can sing with me. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I hath needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Doesn't that just make it all melt and go away? Imagine in a refugee camp, a prisoner of war cast out from your city that has just fallen to the enemy, and that tune begins to well up among those you are with. It transforms, and I have to confess that no matter how dreary things can be, that little tune converts my heart as those words converted the heart of Jeremiah in verse 22. He says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will 
hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. The soul that seeks Him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Music's powerful stuff, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? The second gospel reference is a little more obscure, and I'm not sure you'll be able to join with me, although I hope you may. It's no less, however, a straight line from our text. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy in his second letter, which we have record. There may have been dozens of letters between Paul and Timothy, but we only ended up with two. He was his junior assistant. Remember, Paul is writing from prison. He's most likely underfed, he's cold, he's perhaps nursing wounds from regular beatings and corporal punishment and confinement. And again, there is little distance between our modern and biblical world. He is imprisoned for ideological reasons. His version of God's immense grace poured out on all resulted in multiple incarcerations by those who wanted to keep classes of people underfoot. Speaking of liberation is a dangerous thing. You don't speak of justice to corrupt power without serious consequences. Not many upon hearing the indictment of their own corruption would sit quietly and say, ah, you're right, I've been unfair, it's unreasonable, let's redo the social structure and allow the least among us to share equally at the table. No, in most places speech is not protected. So therefore Paul faces the consequences of his own making. He knew what he was doing and he knew what the consequences would be. And he writes to Timothy not for pity, not for empathy or sympathy or compassion. Paul pivots and writes Timothy words of encouragement. Sometimes in our darkest situations we are tempted by discouragement and despair, but the best tonic is to find encouragement to offer to others. Now I know there is much in the literature about self-care that says it's just like in an airplane when you receive the instructions for the oxygen mask. Put yours on first and then assist your children. And if you have multiple children's, then pick the one with the most potential. <laughs> but that, my friends, is not a relevant spiritual analogy. You don't have to wait until you can breathe deeply of grace in order to share that grace. In fact, often the opposite is true. When you offer encouragement and refreshment and hope to another, something happens as you're speaking those words as they echo back to your own ears and all of a sudden you begin to recover yourself the hope that you're commending to another. During the Civil War, there was a gentleman by the name of Daniel Webster Whittle. He became a major, and so after the Civil War, he was always known as Major Whittle. And he lost his right arm fighting in the Battle of Vicksburg with William Tecumseh Sherman. Worse than that, he was then taken prisoner by the Confederacy, and he was in an infirmary in the prison camp in the South. During his recovery, he was looking for something to read to pass the time. 
and the only book that was near him was a Bible. Let me quote to you from his diary from Major Whittle. The scripture words resonated with me. I was not yet ready to accept them as my own. I did not in the reading accept Christ. But shortly after I had been reading, a hospital orderly woke me and said that a dying prisoner wanted somebody to pray with him. I didn't know words, but the orderly said, I thought you were a Christian. I've seen you reading the Bible. And so I agreed to go. I dropped to my knees and held the boy's hand in mine. A few broken words, I confessed my sins and asked Christ to forgive me, and I believed right there that I was indeed forgiven. Then I prayed earnestly for the boy. He became quiet and pressed my hand as I prayed and pleaded God's promises. And when I arose from my knees, he was gone. A look of peace had come over to his troubled face, and I cannot help believe that God used him to bring me to the Savior, used me to lead him to trust Christ's precious blood and find pardon. I do hope to meet him in heaven, for we were both united by God's Spirit in that moment. So as a prisoner himself, Major Whittle's own faith was kindled when he, against his will, offered an encouraging prayer to another. Following the end of the war, Major Whittle moved to Elgin, Illinois, and there he became the treasurer of the Elgin Watch Company in 1865, a newly formed company that was going to make watches for the world. He did that job for about 10 years as treasurer, and then he could no longer remain in that position as Dwight L. Moody impressed him to join him as an evangelist. And so it was with the encouragement of another, he found faith for himself and a future in that faith. Which brings me back to the second musical trigger reference to today's readings that comes from the prisoner Paul to his student Timothy. Note in the passage we just read, there are two key things that Paul shares with Timothy that are powerful when we talk about those shared words of encouragement. The first one is the loss of shame. The loss of shame. Verse 8, he says to Timothy, do not be ashamed. The second, in verse 12, he speaks to himself, I am not ashamed. At the root of our greatest sorrows usually lies that festering parasite of shame, of regret. I did this to myself. I am stuck here. Something that by its very nature cannot be undone, but rides along with us, sapping our strength, destroying our well-being, our sense of hope, and our sense of purpose. Paul, in encouraging Timothy to not be ashamed, moves to the eradication of his own shame. Don't be ashamed of the gospel and why I am here and now I'm not ashamed. In encouraging someone to let go of that irrevocable past, to rise up and say you do not need to be living in shame anymore is one of the best ways for us to be able to cast off that self-same curse. 
The second reoccurring theme that happens between Paul and Timothy is this notion of trust and deposit. Verse 12, he writes, I am sure that God is able to guard the deposit I have entrusted to him. And then returning in the imperative to Timothy at the conclusion of our passage, verse 14, guard the good deposit entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. The sense of deposit that Paul is saying here is the sense of placing something in front of somebody and saying you're responsible for this. Take responsibility. You're at Starbucks and you get a call and you know you're going to be boisterous in that call because it's customer service calling you back from the electrician company, right? So you want to take that call in Starbucks and so you tell the person next to you, could you keep your eye on my laptop while I step outside? and take this call, right? That's the sense of deposit, Paul is using that word, to put it in front of another and entrust them. Now, you don't know that person. They could very well be looking for laptops to pawn to buy drugs, but for some reason, you just, because we're sitting here side by side, there's this instant trust. Paul is saying that our very souls, our very selves, have been put before God And we've said, can you keep an eye on this while I do what I believe I am called to do? Can that deposit, that entrustment be secure? Before God, Paul said, I've put myself before God. I have deposited myself in the presence of God. And I have confidence that whatever happens is going to be fine because God can be trusted Paul says we place our lives under God's own gaze, so how could we be afraid? Again, in times of discouragement and frustration and despair, my mom used to break into song. And one of the songs that she loved to sing was composed by Major Daniel Whittle the treasurer for the Elgin Clock Company, the wounded Civil War veteran who transformed these words from 2 Timothy 1.12 into a little gospel song. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he has made known nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. I'm sorry, I can hear my mom washing the dishes, singing that chorus. I can hear her. Let me try again. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Who knows that? There's about six of you, and I could hear you hum along. It's an amazing thing that music does. It 
bolsters our confidence, but by its very nature, it's shared. Anybody who wandered by, especially in the summer when all the windows in our house were open, could hear my mother sing with confidence and faith. And whether they were paying attention or not, what was wafting over them was her gift of encouragement and release and hope. Sing, my friends. Sing. Do not be ashamed. Trust the deposit of your very souls to the one who is trustworthy. Amen. Amen. Stand with me and let us speak the words of the Apostles' Creed as our affirmation of faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body.